Uh, good evening, everybody. <clears throat> uh, in the talk tonight, um, I'd like to introduce you to one of my teachers. And this is how I met one of my teachers. <clears throat> this is a book called One Robe, One Bowl, the Zen poetry of Ryokan. <clears throat> and this is not my version of it because I didn't know I was going to give this talk tonight, so I didn't bring all my Ryokan books. And But Sean was kind enough to really dig this book out of a treasured hidden place, not at Spirit Rock, so thank you. And, um, and I have a lot of love for Ryokan, so I'm happy to introduce you and talk about him. And, and it, the way it came about is we were talking about, you know, the last formal talk of the retreat and what to talk about. And, and you know, there were different ideas. We could talk about Sangha or we could talk about different parts of the Buddhist teaching. And, but we were all interested in talking about the humanness of Buddhism. There was some draw to that. And and I was happy to talk about Ryokan. When I went and looked at my talks on Ryokan, the talk said, oh, the human face of awakening, Ryokan. So I was kind of tuned in to that. Uh, that thread of practice for a while, and I love that thread of practice, which is the, which is this thread, right? The the humanness of the Dharma, because this is where the Dharma is, <clears throat> and the Dharma has its formalities and its rituals and its rites and all kinds of stuff, all good and. Um, but the the living Dharma is sitting in your seat. Nowhere else that I can tell, except in the seat next to you, right, also. Right. And in the seat of those who are drawn to the Dharma, this is where the Dharma appears. And I am going to do something we haven't done, which is ask for a teeny bit of formality, that, and which is, unless you're injured, we ask you not to lie down for the talks, but actually to sit up. And if you're injured and you have to lay down, that's fine. But otherwise, you know, the talks can be boring enough that if you lay down, you'll just fall right asleep. And it's it's really not a bad thing to fall asleep, but it's the teachers then have to work with their feelings about that. And <laughs> so we appreciate the sitting up part of practice, um, at least for the Dharma talks. So thank you. And Ryokan, you know, I've been looking at you know what I've written before and what I've thought before, and I'll just. We'll just go and we'll see where it goes about Ryokan, because really it's about us as well as Ryokan. It's about, oh, what is it to be human and practice this practice and discover the 
essence or the depth or the truth of our humanness, of what's sitting here. It's not, I mean, that part I'm really clear about, like, oh, it's right here. <clears throat> and partly I like to talk about Ryokan because he, um, in my heart and mind, he embodies the bodhisattva ideal, the bodhisattva ideal. Bodhi meaning awakening, sattva being, right? The bodhisattva uh, uh, ideal, bodhisattva also is talked about as, um, uh, in addition to Buddhas, there are bodhisattvas who are those who practice and who their practice is to um, um, support their awakening. Practice and awakening is to support everybody's awakening. <clears throat> and so I find his humanness so um, beautiful. Like what a beautiful gift to give to all of us. His realness, his um, not not idealized spirituality of Ryokan. I like that about him. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I love the Buddha and I love the practice of awakening. And, and I love statues, as I've said. And, you know, I like these statues pretty good. And I like the Buddha and I like Prajnaparamita very much. Um, but, um, you know, they're a little, they're a little stiff. <laughs> they're, they're a little, you know, they're statues. And that's, they're great, great. But, um, but one of the things I don't like about statues is sometimes they, given our um, learning about what's actually sitting in our seat, they kind of promote some idea that there's something there that we're not. And, and there may be some relative truth to there's more for us to discover, but what they are exemplifying is sitting somewhere in our seat. The potential for awakening is sitting, it's right here. <clears throat> and, you know, and I'm not so big on the idealization of enlightenment. The idealization, meaning it's up here and we're down here. We may not be enlightened, and, but it just the the idealization creates a false relationship with what is here, right here. And I love the idea of what's called awakening, also talked about as being disillusioned. And we often think disillusion is not being disillusioned is not a good thing, but just to be disillusioned. When I, that sounds good to me. Like if we get rid of our illusions, that's not a bad thing. And so to be disillusioned means not to be bound by fantasy or history or memory or imagining, but start to be objective about reality. And objective doesn't mean cold, 
or doesn't mean it's not warm or kind or caring or intimate. So, so as I've said, my good friend, teacher, companion for some 25 years, 30 years, who I didn't like when I met, I just want to tell you, which is often the case with me and people, you know, I don't, it's not my first response always to everybody. And it wasn't to Rio Khan. I had a teacher who wasn't a Buddhist teacher, but who had some cities. Cities means powers. And I didn't even like him either when I met him, but which is totally true. I didn't. I went one night to see this guru and because uh, a friend who, who knew I was interested in meditation told me about him. And I went to go see him and he was a total new age guru like that I was not interested in at all and you know like bat lit light for so he looked all luminous and you know and people you know and it was just and and I kind of you know I'm going to be really honest here I'm going to tell you what happened <laughs> maybe I'm not I don't want to embarrass it down <laughs> no <laughs> What happened was I went to go see him and I heard, you know, and I sat there and I was trying to see, okay, what is this about? And, and it, was, it was a full room, like 400 people or something to go see this guy. And, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, and, but I didn't like it and I didn't like the scene. And, you know, the most interesting thing was one point I'm sitting with my eyes closed and he is too. And I opened my eyes and he's looking right at me. So that caught my attention, like, okay, that was interesting, but still, I didn't like him, I didn't like his teaching, I didn't like the whole scene. And, and I was a musician back then, this is over 30 years ago, it's a long time ago. And so I went home and I did what I like to do, which is I smoked a little pot and I played music. And I, had, and I wasn't, I smoked a little pot, but I, you know, I was, I knew, I knew something about pot. And what was interesting was, I got really high. I mean, re higher than this pot had ever got me. And so that was interesting to me. So then I thought, okay, I'll go see this guy again. <laughs> this is, you know, who knows how the Dharma works, but that's, that's all true. And I went back and I saw him again, didn't like him again, same thing, the whole scene, too much, you know, idealization of the guru and for me and all this stuff. And, and I thought, okay, 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 and let's see how the pot is tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I went home and I smoked the pot, same pot, and I didn't get high at all. Not even a little bit. Now I was really interested. What what'll happen if I go a third time? <laughs> this is true. Anyhow, anyhow, by the third time something started to happen there. So I didn't go home and get stoned, but I ended up hanging out with that guy for a while, and he recommended this book to people. And I got the book. I was like, "What? This is what is this?" This is kind of ridiculous. This is so simple. This is like just some guy. This isn't didn't interest me. And it didn't for a while. But I didn't throw the book away, even though I had gotten it. And 
And then slowly, I started to have a relationship with Ryokan and Ryokan's teaching and his words and his life. Because that's all it's about, is this one person's humanness and his life. And and he lived 1770 to 1830. And what I have continued to learn from Ryokan and love about Ryokan is that he didn't split spirituality and life. They weren't two different things. His life was his practice and his practice was his life. And whatever he did, his practice was right there. And his practice wasn't based on some uh, I'm going to use some psychological ter- terms here, on an egocentric idea of what spirituality should look like. And by egocentric, I mean an image that feels comfortable to our ego self. Right? He didn't have a kind of projection, oh, he should look like this so everybody would see that he's spiritual. You know, I mean, that's one of the things I always love when a lot of us, you know, discover spirituality. And we want everybody to see how spiritual we are all of a sudden. You know, and of course our friends are like, get off it, bro, you know. And, you know, we, we know you. <laughs> so, so Ryokan doesn't, have that happening as far as I can tell. And and his life, like here, here's a description of his life in a poet poem of his and how his um, dedication and centering in his practice intertwined with life and the world around him quite naturally. First day of spring blue sky, bright sun. Everything is gradually becoming fresh and green. Carrying my bowl, I walk slowly to the village. The children, surprised to see me, joyfully crowd about, bringing my begging trip to an end at the temple gate. I place my bowl on top of a white rock and hang my sack from the branch of a tree. Here we play with the wild grasses and throw a ball. For a time I play catch while the children sing. Then it is my turn. Playing like this, here and there, I have forgotten the time. Passers-by point and laugh at me, asking, What is the reason for such foolishness? No answer I give, only a deep bow. Even if I replied, they would not understand. Look around. There is nothing beside this. What is the reason for such foolishness? No answer I give, only a deep bow. Even if I replied, they would not understand. Look around. There is nothing beside this. And if I was really a Zen teacher, I'd stop the talk right now. 
Because <laughs> even we could say it, there's nothing beside this, right? This is what's here right now. And yeah, there's the all past, future, all that stuff, but really this is what's here. This living reality that we often don't attend to or live in or know directly or immediately or intimately. <clears throat> and Rio Khan was trained in... Um, I hope I thought I had something about his name. Oh yeah, I do. Good. He was trained in Zen, Soto Zen, which, um, in my uneducated um, understanding, has to do with just sitting is Buddha nature. Just sitting is Buddha nature, and it's not separate from the activities of everyday life. Practice and enlightenment are one. And I'm going to say that again. Practice and enlightenment are one. And he trained for 12 years and he was deeply moved by his teacher, Kokusen, who was understood and seen to be a very sincere and earnest person. Very down to earth with what's called a no-nonsense Zen teaching. And no-nonsense Zen equals piling up rocks and hauling dirt. That's practice. Right? It's simple. Just this is practice. Just what we're doing right now is practice. Not just the formal sitting or the formal walking, but the eating and the talking and the, and the laughing and the having fun, and the seeing the suffering, and the rain, and the sun. Just this is practice. And his name, Ryokan, means, it's a Zen name, means good and generous and kind-hearted. And he really embodies his name. He's good and kind and generous and uh, kind-hearted, as I said. And he also took his own name, Taigu, which meant great fool, <laughs> which I like somebody who can say that about themselves because we could all claim that if we were really honest. But um, he was not afraid of that, he, and so he was called Taigu, which great fool, even that term as a spiritual term, implies a childlike simplicity and a lack of pretense. Simplicity and lack of pretense. And that's one of the beautiful manifestations of Ryokan is his lack of pretense. A poem he says, today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddha shrine, talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. <laughs> uh, 
I love Rio Khan. <laughs> because he's just a person, he's just a human, he's just real, right? Last year a foolish monk, this year no change. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He's not having to um, build up or defend his personality, his identity. And it's one of the, it's part of the dukkha of our own experience, because we all have that, right? It's one of the sufferings of maybe all human beings, I don't know, but definitely at our time and place and culture, there is something that's been uh, encouraged about the individual identity being so important. And then we all have our personality and how we act some way or show ourselves. And we, you know, we, we all want to be loved, but we don't go around saying, oh, would you please love me? Which would be totally honest for all of us, I'm sure. But we act in certain ways or we look try to look a certain way or we try to do things so we get those kind of responses from people. And it's fine to do it, you know, it's okay, but don't don't build your whole house on that because somebody's not gonna like you anyways or or you know, or your personality or your image or your idea of yourself isn't gonna impress somebody. And it, of course, because that's just the way it works. And so if we're not so identified with the sense of whatever it is, Eugene-ness or Pam-ness or Anna-ness or, or whoever you are-ness, and it, it doesn't mean, oh, we go away from ourselves or we deny ourselves or we don't take care of ourselves. We're just not trying to build up the The, unfund, the unfundamental reality of what's here. We're not trying to build something so that we have this, you know, image that then draws something or people like. Or We're just trying to be ourselves. And what's here is already good. That's not, Ryokan doesn't say that, but I think he would totally agree. What's here is already good. And we often don't know it, that what's here is already good. <clears throat> and so his, like him saying, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. I mean, that's just, I love that. I love the humor. I love it when we can take ourselves lightly when we're not so worried about ourselves or, or impressed with ourselves also. It's been very important in my practice to learn how to relax and just be here and, and let, as I like to say, let the Dharma do it. I don't have to do it, the Dharma will do it. Reality will, reality's doing it all anyways. And so understanding the freedom of of Taigu, of the holy fool, helps us not to take ourselves quite so seriously. And again, I don't mean seriously doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves or 
do what's needed to take care of a human being, this human being, or the one sitting in your seat. So, and Rio Khan, he didn't, he didn't take everybody else so seriously either, which was really, and I liked that about him. And so there's stories about him. And again, I don't have all my books, but I have many of these stories in my head. He liked to poke fun at pomp and ceremony, which I have a lot of appreciation for personally. And so there's a story where he goes, you know, he's Japanese, he's invited to a very fancy tea ceremony. And he goes to the tea ceremony and he thought, it's, it's too snooty for him. So, you know, so he goes there and he, and it's, you know, he has some of the fancy tea, which is, it's a big deal about it. And he ends up spitting it back in the bowl and exclaiming, this tastes awful. You know, and of course, it's just outlandish to do something like that. And then, and so the very haughty person next to him is, you know, doesn't even want to pay attention to him. So in the story, it said that he picked his nose and tried to deposit it on the person next to him. You know, which is, you know, not, I'm not suggesting that's part of your practice or anything, but, but it also points to humanness, right? We're all here together. And, you know, it's okay to fool with somebody a little bit once in a while. And, and here's some other examples. He, he was quite famed as a calligrapher, and calligraphy is beautiful. In fact, this is his calligraphy on the front of this book. And um, I can't remember what it is. It's like the moon and something else. The moon and the mind. I don't know where it is. Where it, oh yeah, cover design. Um, mind, moon, circle, carved on the cedar lid of a rice pot. Right, that's his one of some of his calligraphy, and so he was appreciating. And what what happened was because his calligraphy was good, what what happens? People want it, right? Oh, I have some real con calligraphy, which I'll sell to you very cheaply, and you know, or I keep and it show it off, and so so. And people would try to get it from him and do things to try and get it. And he would he would play with them and he would he would give it also. But he's not bound on some idea about how you're supposed to be. And so there's a story about um, he went to get a haircut and the guy cut half his hair and said, Well I won't cut the rest until you give me a calligraphy. So he gives him a calligraphy of a mantra, you know, a spiritual phrase, but he doesn't explain that he's left out a character, so that invalidates the mantra that he's giving the guy. And or or one time he was playing the game of go, you know, the game of go, and he lost, and so he had to give the guy a calligraphy, and so he went home and wrote a calligraphy and then gave it to the guy. And the calligraphy was a short poem that said, Picking persimmons, picking persimmons, my testicles are frozen by the autumn wind. (laughs) So, now I've given this talk before, and, and I did have a yogi who really liked that poem. And she made a 
a cup, a beautiful cup, that has that poem inscribed <laughs> on it that she gave to me. And <laughs> I very much appreciate that. So if you're a potter, you know, I'm okay with that, you know. And, but also he was light about reality. He was light about the truth, meaning not heavy about it or hard about it. But he, but he wasn't afraid of the truth either. So here's another poem about old age. He said, it is an easy condition to talk about, but these runny bowels are killing me. <laughs> and, and there's many stories of his kindness and care and warmth and humanness and love. And there's a story, I, get, I don't have the story, I'm gonna give you my version of it that I remember of his nephew and um, his nephew was causing some problems, you know, as young people can naturally do in the family. You know, maybe he was uh, in his late teens and, you know, and the parents were concerned and whatever he was doing, maybe he was drinking sake and running around. And, um, but, uh, and so Ryokan was staying at the house. And, um, and at one point he asked the... Um, um, the nephew for some help, and he he needed help with his sandals or something, and so the nephew was tying the sandals, and he felt this wetness on his head, and it was Ryokan weeping about his concern for his nephew. He he never said a word to the boy. That's all that happened, and it changed the young man's behavior. So that kind of relationship with life where he's touched by it and he expresses himself but he's not just telling somebody you should or you shouldn't or he's just expressing really his love and care <clears throat> and his compassion some of his quite famous poems this is one of his most famous definitely one of his most famous in my heart and mind it's about compassion. He said, oh, that, these, that my priest's robe, oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough. Oh, that my priest's robe was, were wide enough to gather all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather all the suffering people in this floating world. And he was quite alive. It's a little bit like the Dalai Lama. If you've ever been around the Dalai Lama, who we've talked about a bit, and even by ourselves we've talked about him a bunch. Um, um, <clears throat> he he, he um, laughs really easily, the Dalai Lama. I mean, he, he knows how to have some fun, and he knows how to laugh. And he cries really easily. And uh, this is, I haven't thought of this in a long time, and I think I have that correct. But there, and I can't remember the name of the fellow who was studying human faces. Do you remember that guy? Ekman, thank you. So Ekman was studying human faces and the, how they work and move and how they express. And he studied the Dalai Lama. And he said it was 
as fluid as something like the face of a 10-year-old because it wasn't held. And the tears come and the laughter comes. Life comes and it just lives through him. It's not held. <clears throat> and and Rio Khan is very similar and he's very un... He's not uh, afraid to just say what's true for him. Uh, another poem, he says, as I watch, as I watch the children, as I watch the children happily playing, as I watch the children happily playing without realizing it, as I watch the children happily playing without realizing it, my eyes, with a, as I watch the children happily playing without realizing it, my eyes fill with tears. And he's just open to life and the beauty of life and the poignancy of life. And he's intimate with the vicissitudes of life and the the whole dimension, I want to say what we said before, the whole catastrophe. Here again, he's saying, <clears throat> sometimes I sit quietly listening to the sound of falling leaves. Sometimes I sit quietly listening to the sound of falling leaves. And he didn't say these over and over again, but I love this, these two lines. Sometimes I sit quietly listening to the sound of fallen leaves, falling leaves. Peaceful indeed is the life of a monk, cut off from all worldly matters. Then why do I shed these tears? Sometimes I sit quietly, listening to the sound of falling leaves. Peaceful indeed is the life of a monk, cut off from all worldly matters. Then why do I shed these tears? And you hear the permeability of consciousness that's alive for Rio Khan. The intimacy with life, just life, period. And he's impacted by the teachings and the, what, what is talked about in Buddhism. The truth of impermanence impacts him. The truth of our interconnectedness touches him. The truth of our suffering moves him. <clears throat> So another poem, he says, walking along a narrow path at the foot of a mountain, I come to an ancient cemetery filled with countless tombstones and thousand-year-old oaks and pines. Walking along a narrow path at the foot of a mountain, I come to an ancient cemetery filled with countless tombstones and thousand-year-old oaks and pines. The day is ending with a lonely, plaintive wind. The names on all the tombs are completely faded. The names on all the tombs are completely faded, and even the relatives have forgotten who they were. Choked with tears, unable to speak, 
I take my staff and return home. So you hear, I hope, or at least I hear, and I hope it's conveyed, the intimacy with life itself. Not just what I'm doing or who I am or what I've done, but just life and how life is presenting itself all the time, really everywhere. And he has a strong, of course, relationship with nature as the Buddha did and the way life is manifesting because we are all nature. We are nature. It's not just, oh, we're in nature, we see nature, we love. We are one of the manifestations of nature itself. And his love of nature, he weaves it through his poems, through his teaching, and he points us to seeing the Dharma everywhere. And really, I think one of the things the three of us have hoped is a little bit the way we've been pointing at practice and awareness is that what we're pointing at is that, oh, when you go home, you're going to be aware everywhere also. Can you start to be aware that you're aware also when you're talking, when you're at home, when you're working? And not, not every moment, don't worry about it or think of it in some idealized way. But watch the Dharma start to live in you in this way. Because what we pointed at today is happening all the time. Awareness is happening. And the potential for starting to come into alignment with the nature of the way things are, which is that as human beings, we are aware. So he said, he said, the rain has stopped. This would be good to read right after the rain yesterday. The rain has stopped. The clouds have drifted away and the weather is clear again. And we had that kind of day. The rain has stopped. The clouds have drifted away and the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world. Abandon yourself. Then the moon and flowers will guide you along the way. Beautiful teaching. The rain has stopped. The clouds have drifted away. And the weather is clear again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world. Abandon yourself. Then the moon and flowers will guide you along the way. And by pure, we could, we could maybe train, change the translation if your heart is open or if your heart is unbound or if your heart is free. Then all things in your world become pure because your heart or heart-mind, which is a better way to even say it, starts to see the beauty of, and the magic and really the mystery of reality, of life itself, which is indescribable at some level. And I like Ryokan because he's not 
One, one of the things, uh, this is, again, I'm going to be personal, and this stays at the retreat, okay? <laughs> Meaning, one of Eugene's um, attitudes or ideas, or, yeah, attitudes, is I have a little um, reaction to the idea being spiritual means you're nice. I mean, that's, that's okay. It's nice to be nice which my dad used to say it's nice to be nice <laughs> somebody somebody when my dad died made a donna offering and said i want to make a little bench with your dad's name out there and i said great and they wanted me to put something on there and I, and what one of my brothers said oh you could put it's nice to be nice i'm like no i'm not going to put that <laughs> Because he had a different spiritual teaching that I liked that I did put on there. I think I did. I haven't looked at it in years. But um, uh, but I like Ryokan because he's not just like, oh, you have to be nice and that's what spiritual is. you know. And so here's a beautiful nature poem of his that really describes to me, so let's see what it says to you, wild peonies, wild peonies. The flower, wild peonies, now at their peak, in glorious bloom, too precious to pick, too precious not to pick. <laughs> uh, it took me a while to really get into that poem, but I love that. Because he's describing the humanness, right? Too precious to pick. It's a natural. Oh, that's so beautiful. But also, mm, it's too precious not to pick. <laughs> so I like that he's not bound by convention or social idea, or some way you're supposed to be. And uh, there's a, a phrase that I love from the Shin Shin Ming, which is uh, uh, verses of the faith mind. Is that a good point? Yeah, verses from the faith mind, or the mind of absolute trust, right? That's, that's a, a, one of the Zen teachings that I, I love. And it's a beautiful teaching, Google it, check it out, great. The Shinshin Ming. And there's one line in there. I mean, there's many, many great lines in there. It's, it starts, um, uh, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. Is that the first line, basically? Who are not attached to their preferences. Well, different translations, but okay. But it's, it's yeah, but it's, you know, it's it's a beautiful, t it starts there and it really goes, beautiful text. And there's one line that I love, it says, realization, realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. And it's one of the things I appreciate about that. I learned from Rirkan, really, he wasn't, he wasn't about perfection. He was about real con. He was just being real con. And this, I have this somewhere later in the talk, but I'll say it now. And what I love about the Buddha is the Buddha became the Buddha by being the Buddha. He didn't try to be Rama 
or Sita or Krishna. He became the Buddha. He didn't try to be somebody else. Even what people told him was the way to go. He became himself and he became the Buddha. And I love that real Khan is real Khan. He's not trying to become somewhere else, partly because at a certain point it really gave Eugene permission to be Eugene, for better or for worse. And, you know, and believe me, it has some of both being Eugene, which each, each manifestation has. But somehow learning how to be ourselves and trust ourselves, the realization of what's sitting right here starts to come forward more. Slowly, quickly, you know, dramatically or subtly, either way, it's still, this is where it is. And so uh, I love his teaching in general, and I love this, here's a teaching, beautiful Buddhist teaching, right, about desire. He says, without desire, everything is sufficient. Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone, I hike with the deer. Cheerfully, I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fills my heart. The simplicity of reality revealing itself for all of us. And his immediacy of practice that he's there with the kids or he's there with the stream or he's there with the pine on the mountaintop. And it's the thereness that is powerful. Have you noticed your hereness having a power to it? And I don't mean power like, oh, you're the biggest, best, greatest, but there's some way that the hereness of us, I don't know the words to you. I could say it's powerful or it's strong or it's magical. I don't know if that's the right, it's not a great word to use in Buddhism, but, but there's something here that we're still discovering about what it is to be a human, and we're discovering it by being here. <clears throat> and he, he, like, you know, and the simple practice, because all, all we're doing is just being here, that's all, all this practice is very simple. Everybody got that? We're not doing anything. We're just being here. And then a lot of happens because, you know, we have hearts and minds and bodies and history and all kinds of stuff. But the simplicity is quite beautiful. He says, the bamboo grove in the front of my hut, the bamboo grove in the front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. Every day, the bamboo grove in the front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. Now that's, that's some kind of awakening. 
That's some kind of realness. That's some kind of not living in the past about the bamboo, right? Like how often do we see stuff we know and we know it? It's already known. It's not fresh. It's not alive. It's not, we tire of things. And yeah, so be aware of your tiring, but also the potential to not tire of reality because reality or realness in my language, it's brand new every moment. And he he loves people. I have I have a lot of poems here, so I'm gonna try to get through a little more of this talk. But he uh he loves people and he's open to his emotions and his feelings and when he's seventy he falls in love with a young nun, right? Now, there's a taboo for you. Um, And they have a very passionate relationship. I think she's something like 30 years old, so much younger than him. Um, They have a passionate uh, but platonic relationship, but passionate. And I don't have the book. I didn't have the book. It has a lot about them. And it's like, they had a good time. I mean, that was no joke. Um, you know, because they they write about missing each other, and uh, you know, and how they think about one another, and how they see one. You know, they they love each other, and they're not afraid of the love. They're not acting on it in ways we people might act, but that doesn't matter. They they're living it, and they're living both the sukha and the dukkha of it, like any relationship. <clears throat> I thought I found something in here. Let me see if what I've got. Here, like this is one of the poems he wrote to her. He said, have you forgotten the way to my hut? <laughs> right. I mean, maybe that, I should just stop right there. <laughs> I mean, really, have you forgotten the way to my hut? Every evening I wait for the sound of your footsteps. Have you forgotten the way to my hut? Every evening I wait for the sound of your footsteps, but you do not appear. You know, it's a relationship, sukha and dukkha, you know. And there's more, there's some great stuff. And, and then hers to him, too. She's, Taishin is her name, is beautiful what she writes. And yeah. Um, and then he writes about practice and realization. And so I want to read you a little about his understanding or his poetry of what he discovers which is, you know, uh, a weave of love and compassion and kindness and humor and seriousness and simplicity. He says, In the stillness by the empty window, I sit in formal meditation wearing my monk's robes. In the stillness by the empty window, and even if, I, I wish I knew a little more, but even the translation 
there are words here that are also part of the transmission of what he's saying in the stillness by the empty window. I sit in formal meditation wearing my monk's robes, navel and nose in alignment, ears parallel with the shoulders. Moonlight floods the room. Moonlight floods the room. The rain stops, but the eaves drip and drip. Perfect this moment. Perfect this moment. In the vast emptiness, my understanding deepens. And I will give you a little more context. Remember, moonlight in Japanese Zen always is talking about awakening, right? Moonlight floods the room, the rain stops, but the eaves drip and drip. Perfect this moment. In the vast emptiness, my understanding deepens. And then this is really one of my totally favorite poems. I'll read as a few of them here, really. I love all of this, but so please indulge me for a moment. He describes the process of awakening that you'll, you'll hear, you'll hear. He says, like the little stream, like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I, it like, the mo- like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I, too, quietly turn clear and transparent. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I also, too, quietly turn clear and transparent. So the emptiness is not out there, it's here. Shunyata and anatta, emptiness and selflessness. And maybe his most famous poem, haiku, about equanimity, awakening. The thief, the thief left it behind. The thief left it behind, the moon at the window. The thief left it behind, the moon at the window. This is after he came home and all his stuff had been stolen. The thief left it behind, the moon at the window. I'll just give you a couple more because I'm indulgent of myself (laughs) and I I love these poems so I hope they're at least a little interesting he's talking about what's called mushin in Japanese Zen mushin or no mind no mind or the mind that abides everywhere so it's good to hear the paradoxical language because it points us at something beyond our usual logicalness Right, Mushan, which is no mind or the mind that abides nowhere. 
with no mind, blossoms invite the butterfly. With no mind, blossoms invite the butterfly. With no mind, the butterfly visits the blossom. With no mind, the butterfly visits the blossom. When the flower blooms, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower blooms. I do not know, K-N-O-W, I do not know others. I do not know others. Others do not know me. I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. With no mind, blossoms invite the butterfly. With no mind, the butterfly visits the blossoms. When the flower blooms, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower blooms. I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. It can, can be an interesting practice to go around and either pretend or just see that you don't know anybody and they don't know you. And then what's reality like if we don't know anybody but we're here? And then uh, just one more. And, and really, when we talked a little about this and talking about the humanness of practice and of Dharma and of realization and of Ryokan as a embodiment of that, we also felt some kind of our own, really, generosity about the retreat and the appreciation for being here together and practicing together and exploring the Dharma together and learning about it together. And the last talk, wanting to give you something. And really, we're giving you Ryokan and his, his livingness which is not based on time and space, but is, that's here as we echo his words and speak his language and learn from him and play with him in this way. <clears throat> and so last poem, really one of my favorites, but him, from him. Also, our good friend Howie, Howie Cohen, who teaches, he really loves this poem. He said, Buddha is your mind. Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere 
Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? So appreciation to Rio Khan and to you. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's sit for a moment. And you can sit relaxed or, or formal, whatever you wish. But you don't have to be formal. You can try something radical and be informal. The Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. So we'll have about a half an hour for walking practice.